All right. First Thessalonians chapter 5 is where you're going to start off. Now, um, we're putting the day of the Lord and the rapture together because in many rapture um, views, well, particularly one rapture view, the day of the Lord and understanding of, the, of what the day of the Lord is is absolutely central to that view. Um, <clears throat> also because it, it does come into, it has, plays an important part in the end times and our understanding of the end times. So it's a, it's a study in and of itself, which we won't be able to give full attention to tonight, but what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to give uh, a kind of an overview of it and uh, look, at least have enough of an understanding of it to see what the phrase does mean and then that will help us uh, when we get to looking at the different rapture views okay <clears throat> take a drink of this so first Thessalonians chapter 5 is a great place to start off <clears throat> the apostle Paul says but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Excuse me. Uh, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. A couple of things, or three or four things to bring out here. First of all, notice that they knew about the day of the Lord. Okay, They were not ignorant about the day of the Lord. That means that um, when Paul taught them, he taught them, and he didn't teach them for very long, <laughs> but one of the things that he taught them about was the day of the Lord teaching. Okay? So they were better taught than a lot of the church <laughs> uh, is. That's important. They knew, they knew about the doctrine. Uh, secondly, that the doctrine of the day of the Lord comes as a thief to take the unsaved nations and peoples by surprise. It's a big shock to them. Okay? It is also a day of wrath because uh, it says it's a day of destruction and uh, um, it's something that overtakes the people. Let's see, it says utter destruction there in verse 3. 
and uh, talks about people not escaping. And then verse 9, God did not appoint us to wrath. Well, he's been talking about the day of the Lord, so the day of the Lord is the day of wrath. Okay? At least here in this context. And then finally, it is a means of comfort. Verse 11. Do you see that? It's a means of comfort and edification to understand this doctrine. All right. So, the day of the Lord is is a familiar term to those who have read the Old Testament at all. We know that we've come across it quite a few times. And um, depending on where you put the the books of the prophets, um, some people put Joel as an early prophet, a 9th century BC prophet. I don't. I don't think Joel was an, an early prophet. I think he was a later uh, prophet. And uh, probably in the uh, 6th century, I think. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with Amos, okay? As the first person to mention the day of the Lord proper. Amos, and we'll talk about, we'll look at Isaiah, and we'll look at Zephaniah, and uh, Joel, of course, and uh, some other places. And I want to, to see how they use the phrase, okay? That's the first kind of thing on the agenda here. All right? So, Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. Verse 18. Says this. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and met a a bear. As though he went into a house, leaned his hand on a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is, is it not very dark with no brightness in it? So here in the Amos 5 passage, okay, we have an em- emphasis, we'll put Amos up here, and we have, have an emphasis on darkness, yes? As far as the day of the Lord is concerned. It's also, it's dark because it's just bad news all around. That's the idea. The, the use of darkness here is metaphorical. Can you see that's a figure of speech? Figure of speech for, this is just a bad time to, to be alive. Um, so you run, you think you've escaped from one calamity and you run into another calamity. That's how bad it will be. Okay? That's the idea that, uh, that is in Amos. And uh, the day here, obviously, it's not just talking about a 24-hour period. It's talking about an extended period of time, okay? In the day of. You know, we, we speak that way too, don't we? Yeah? Um, next one we'll look at is uh, 
we'll go to Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 2. Now Isaiah has quite a bit to say about it. Isaiah chapter 2. Now all we're doing at the moment is trying to get a picture. So Isaiah 2.12. In fact what we'll do is we'll go from verse uh, 5. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they filled, they're filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. and They are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land also is full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands that which their own fingers have made. People bow down and each man humbles himself, therefore do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Okay? Now, then he lists a, a, a bunch of places, the Lebanon, Bashan, Tarshish, and, and so on. And uh, he says the Lord will be exalted and he will abolish their idols. Um, talks about the terror of the Lord three or four times in this uh, second half of this chapter. Okay, So let's put that stuff up, shall we? Alright, so Isaiah 2. And Isaiah 2 is important um, because of some of the things that uh, that are mentioned in it. But uh, Isaiah 2 talks about terror of Yahweh or the Lord. Okay? And then it also uh, speaks about the fact that it's a, it's a judgment upon the proudness, the arrogance of, of men. Okay? Uh, verse 10, notice, enter into the rock and hide in the dust. Hide. So, uh, people are hiding. Okay? In the rocks. Notice that. Okay. Isaiah 13. This is a, an oracle against Babylon. And uh, just a couple of things here. Verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Do you see that? It talks about pangs and sorrows. Verse 8. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. And that's what Paul had said in First Thessalonians 5. He'd, talk, he'd use that figure of speech again as well. Verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath 
and fierce anger. He will destroy the sinners, it says. And then he gives some signs that, that need to be noted. But it's cruel. Okay? So Isaiah 13, okay, speaks about it being cruel. Now, when it says cruel, it, it means that, that there's the things happening, um, in that time that are, are just despicable. It's not saying that God's cruel. <laughs> okay? But it's saying that in that time, there's a lot, uh, it can be characterized as, as cruel because a lot of cruelty is going on. Alright? And then wrath, well, well, I haven't put that up there, but I need to put that up there. That's I? Wrath and fierce anger. Now, fierce anger, just think about that. Okay, not just someone getting angry. Okay, but fierce anger. That's, that's very important that, that we understand what we're talking about here. And then it goes in verse 10 and talks about the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. And he says, I will punish the world for its evil. Okay? And men- mentions the arrogance of, of the proud as well. So, there are also in this chapter, okay, some celestial phenomena going on. Okay? Stars, sun, moon. All right. No wonder Amos said, don't desire it. Okay? Then, uh, let's see. Let's also look at, uh, where would where we go next? Let's go to, um, Zephaniah. So Zephaniah. Three chapters, but, um, oh, keep going right from Micah and so on, okay? Habakkuk, Zephaniah. So Zephaniah speaks about the day of the Lord quite a lot. <clears throat> so Zephaniah 1. I will utterly consume, verse 2, Everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks along which, uh, with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. That's the land that he's talking about. His, you know, Judah, Jerusalem and so on. And against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, um, but who also swear by Milcom, a false deity. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him, 
Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. And uh, then it uh, talks about the day of the Lord's sacrifice and the, the people that he's going to punish and, uh, you know, the nasty things, basically, that are going to happen. Uh, verses 14 to 16. The day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. And the noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Um, so, darkness will... Uh, put Zephaniah 1 here. Uh, distress and then actual physical darkness is portrayed here not just uh, metaphorical darkness Okay, now it talks about physical darkness and gloom like there's a pall over the place not a me pall but (laughs) P-A-L-L pall Um, again day of wrath notice that you see also chapter 3 of Zephaniah chapter 3 of Zephaniah now watch this sing O daughter of Zion shout O Israel be glad and rejoice with all your heart O daughter of Jerusalem the Lord has taken away your judgments He has cast out your enemy. Uh, The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. uh, Let your hands, let not your hands be weak. And uh, in this passage, it doesn't say the day of the Lord, but it, uh, it, what you have is that you have Zephaniah hammering and hammering on the people and talking about the day of the Lord and the day of distress. And then you you read about a day of salvation right after it. Do you see? Now, why is that important? Well, you'll see. You'll see. I think, well, I hope you'll see. But, um, so Zephaniah 3... Okay, we've included Zephaniah 3... Because uh, it talks about a day of salvation. Sorry, that looks like a K. Salvation and rejoicing. Notice that. After the day of the Lord. All right, where shall we go next? Let's go to Ezekiel. Okay, about the same time period. So, Ezekiel, chapter 13.
begins with a woe. Um, verse 3, see that? And then uh, in verse 5, you have not gone into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. Do you see that? So this is the, against the prophets who are prophesying falsely and what he's saying is that you haven't prepared the people. You prophesied falsely. You prophesied peace instead of false pro- prophesying coming judgment. So here in Ezekiel 13, the day of the Lord, uh, and he talks about wrath in verse 15 there, it seems to be, is it, is it really a, about the end times, or is the day of the Lord used here more for a time of, of God's judgment generally? Okay. So Ezekiel 13 certainly mentions uh, uh, wrath, okay, but uh, the question here on this one is it, is it a general day of God's judgment. Okay, so Lamentations. Uh, there is another Ezekiel. I might as well go, since we're in Ezekiel, we'll go to the other Ezekiel one. Ezekiel 30. Ezekiel 30, verse 3. And again you see here, Wail, woe to the day, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, it will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles, the sword shall come against Egypt, and the great anguish shall be in Ethiopia, and so on and so forth. Do you see? It mentions a whole bunch of nations there in verse 5. Um so, the question is here, and he mentions towns and so on also in, uh, um, in areas, Nof, Zoan, Pathros, No, and uh, Avon and so on. These are all pa- uh, places in the ancient world. And it appears that chapter 30, at least this first part of chapter 30, um, is speaking about the day of judgment against that particular pharaoh or that particular nation at that time, I would argue. Yes? So Ezekiel seems to be using uh, the day of the Lord in this more general term. Not, not When I say general, it is specific. It's a day of wrath and day of God's judgment, but it's not eschatological. It's not uh, the last times. You see? You see that? Alright. Lamentations. So, um, at the end of Jeremiah, there's this little book there that we, we always flick past when we're busily get, trying to get to Daniel. Yeah. Um, 
and it's uh, the book of Lamentations. So Lamentations is an interesting book. Obviously, it's a book of Lamentations, five of them, and a fascinating book in and of itself. Um, look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. Now, uh, Lamentations doesn't speak about the day of the Lord. Okay, but it does speak about the day of his anger. Okay, the day of his wrath. And notice uh, here it speaks about um, a cloud, the cloud of his anger here. Look at verse 22 in the same chapter. You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me in the day of the Lord's anger. There was no refugee or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. Uh, here again, the, the language here is the day of the Lord's anger. And he kind of likens it to a feast day, which is what we read also um, earlier, didn't we? That was like that was Isaiah speak, spoke about that. Yeah. So again, what we have in Lamentations, and I'll just put Lamentations here. Although Lamentations doesn't speak about um, the day of the Lord per se, it doesn't use that phrase. Yet, it's certainly about God's judgment, and it does speak about the day of his anger, all right, as a specific period. So that, again, although it's in poetic language, Lamentations is is a poem, and a very well-crafted poem, it's still using it in this also the same way that Ezekiel is using it, yeah? Are we okay with that? All right, let's get to Joel then, shall we? So, Joel is well known for using the term and wherever we put him um, after Hosea whether we make him a a 9th century prophet or an 8th century prophet or a 6th century prophet he's a prophet and uh, he speaks about the day of the Lord um Several places to look here at Joel and some of them to, to kind of underline, all right? Uh, one in particular. First of all, Joel 1, verses 13, and particularly verse 15, but 13 gives us the context. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. And then talks about the food being cut off and, you know, famine coming in and animals withering and blah, blah, blah. Yes, not good stuff. So, um, the day of the Lord in Joel 1, 
is uh, like uh, like famine. Yeah. Joel two. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy city. And we've already seen the sounding of an alarm in connection with the day of the Lord. That all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess and a day of clouds and thick darkness. That reminds us of the Zephaniah passage, yes? Um... And it's interesting, you know, did Zephaniah borrow from Joel or did Joel borrow from Zephaniah or did they both get the same revelation there? Like Micah and Isaiah did, you know, Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. You have that, that same kind of thing for a short verse. And um, a people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been nor will ever be any such after them, even after many successive generations. A fire devours before them, behind them a flame burns. And what's he talking about? Do you know what he's talking about? (laughs) He's actually talking about uh, locusts. Yes. Okay, he's talking about, and he says, uh, verse 10, the, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, and so on. And then verse uh, 11 continued, uh, for the strong, sorry, the strong, strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? This, uh, here in, uh, Chapter 2 of Joel is, uh, it speaks about pain, it speaks about, um, uh, you know, the land being like the Garden of Eden before them and afterwards it's just like, <laughs> you know, destroyed. And um, it's, just, it's just bad stuff going on here in, in the first part of of Joel. Now notice, if you go to verse 25, so I will restore to you the years of the swarming locust that the locust has eaten. You see that? The crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, I mean every kind of locust. The great army which I sent among you. So it appears as though verse 25 is describing the same army of, as the earliest part, of the earlier part of Joel 2. Yeah? And you can read that. I mean, we can read we can read through the whole thing, but you'll see that there is a, a continuity in the chapter about that. And this is the day of the Lord. So Joel two, okay. Um, notice, notice Joel one was famine. This is uh, locusts. Sent by God. Okay, and then the second half of the uh, of Joel two is about God restoring the land. Okay, now uh, in Joel two you have uh, Joel two verse one and uh, blow the trumpet in Zion, the sound and alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. 
Okay? That verse is, is uh, an important verse for the pre-wrath view of the rapture. And then verse 31 of the same chapter. In fact, go to verse 30, sorry. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the uh, earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then it comes, shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see that? And be deliverance in uh, Jerusalem. And talks about uh, the remnant. So this is important. This is important. A context seems to be now shifting from maybe a localized thing with locusts and now it's speaking about um, taking that picture and, and uh, talking about the future. Okay, and of course Peter quotes this in Acts two, doesn't he? Yeah, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my men servants and my men man servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is a new covenant passage. Okay, it's a new covenant passage. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth. So. Uh, Notice, notice that. The sun shall be turned to darkness. So we need to put that in there. Sun to darkness. What's that darkness? Moon to blood. Okay. So, do we have to go through all of this stuff? Yes, I'm afraid we do. We have to go through this because this, you know, this is not a, a popular class. This is the class where we're, we're trying to dig in and trying to find out uh, what's going on. So, chapter 3 of Joel. Chapter 3. Verses, well, this, you know, you can read the whole of chapter 3 because it's all uh, quite a lot about, you know, bad stuff going on. But look at verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Now that happened when the locusts, you know, moved in, yes? But that's not what's going on here. The locusts, you know, when you get a locust infestation and plague, they can do that. Okay? But um, this is now speaking to the future and a particular place, the Valley of Decision. Okay, The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness and also the Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake for the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. And it talks about him dwelling and Mount Zion. So here you've got one of those prophecies and uh, we've covered these kinds of things before in other courses where you've got bad stuff being uh, prophesied and then good stuff being prophesied as well. It's like Isaiah 61. You get that. We'll go to Isaiah 61 in a minute. So, you know, we'll have a look at it. But you have the same thing going on. It happens quite a lot in the prophets. 
bad stuff and then good stuff. Hosea 2 does the same thing. Sometimes it's good stuff and then bad stuff. But um, you always have God saving, but God also bringing wrath at the same time. Okay, But here, this is the day of the Lord, and um, this involves the Lord himself roaring from Zion. Okay, you see that? Um, in the valley of decision. What is the valley of decision? Well, it's the valley of Jehoshaphat, verse 12. Can you see that? Uh, he's going to sit and judge the surrounding nations, verse 12. He talks about putting in the sickle in verse 13 about because of the wickedness and we'll, go, we'll see that that is used in the book of Revelation chapter 14. Okay? So we are talking about end times here. Uh, where's the valley of Jehoshaphat? Well, it could well be the same as the, as the valley of decision. I think it probably is. Um, but we're not really sure you know where the valley of Jehoshaphat is but it's obviously because Jehoshaphat was the Judean king it's obviously there somewhere okay in Israel and some people would say it's the valley of Armageddon well, it could be it doesn't say it is okay but it could be so we have uh, Joel talking about salvation afterwards, which we uh, have already mentioned somewhere up here. Here we go. Zephaniah talked about it. And now Joel 3 talks about it, doesn't he? Yeah? So Joel 3. Okay. Um, Son... Uh, and stars to darkness means other things and then uh, salvation is offered and it appears to be because uh, God roars from Zion Mount Zion, Jerusalem. That's interesting. And he's judging the people. Okay? Which maybe reminds you a little bit of the sheep and the goats judgment in uh, Matthew 25. Is it that? Maybe. Um, So, Isaiah 63, and as we're going to Isaiah 63... And I said Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 63. So Isaiah 61 first. As we're going to these two places, um, if we pause here and to see what we've got, are we talking about um, a, a time that can be identified as one specific time on the calendar? Or does it cover... Uh, you know, quite a large period. Can it be applied in different contexts? I think so far we can say yes to both questions. Yes, it is talking about a specific time in the eschatological future, but 
then also it's it's general too, of a, for a time of of God's wrath upon God's people or God's enemies. Yes. So it can be used in that in in those two senses. All right. I'm going to throw the spanner in the works a little later on, as far as this is concerned. But Isaiah 61. You know this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of his, or the day of vengeance of our God. What's that? And then it goes back to the good stuff, the comfort, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. You see that? But here's this day of vengeance right in the middle of it. What is this day of vengeance? Chapter uh, 63. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, travelling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So it's coming in salvation. But not just salvation. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Oh, here we are. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. And I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. So you see, there's salvation and blessing, but there's also, you know, some people are going to get pummeled. The day of vengeance of God. Um, that's specific, I think, in both of those places. Although, in uh, in the Isaiah 61 passage, of course, Jesus quoted verse 1 and the first part of verse 2 in the synagogue, didn't he? In Nazareth. Okay, and then closed it and said, this day, this uh, passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah, but he didn't quote the second part about the, the day of vengeance. Because that hadn't been fulfilled. That's later on. That's where we uh, the Old Testament sandwiches together the first and second comings of Christ. And you have to be careful that you uh, differentiate between the two things. Yes. All right. So um, Malachi chapter four, and then I think we'll go into the New Testament. Malachi chapter 4. No, no, well, yes. Yes, Malachi 4 and then Zechariah 14. So Malachi 4 and verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Notice that uh, Elijah is going to have uh, uh, ministry there. Yes? So, Elijah's going to come. And then Zechariah 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. 
and your spoil will be divided in your midst, and I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the horses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. Well, it takes time to do that stuff. All right. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, and so on. And it goes on and talks about the fact that uh, the Lord will dwell in Jerusalem. Okay? And in fact, the second hand of, half of uh, Zechariah 14 talks about the nations coming to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Yeah, worshipping the king. Now, you don't worship a king unless he's divine. Alright? Worshipping the king. So that's the, that's the reign of Christ right there. So, Mount of Olives, well, Acts chapter 1, he went up from the Mount of Olives and the angel said, you know, he will come again as you've seen him go. So, I'm guessing he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives and this guy comes to the Mount of Olives. Eventually, doesn't he? Yeah? And second coming of Christ, maybe. I think that's the second coming of Christ right there in Zechariah 14. It's the day of the Lord. Now, just that. Not not that uh, it's just the day of the Lord, but it's the stuff that's leading up to it and then it includes the Lord coming back and fighting. Do you see that? And elsewhere we saw that he roars from Zion. Okay? Alright. So there's the Old Testament stuff. Most of it has to do with a time in the future, I think, where God will act. He's going to act in judgment. He's going to act in wrath. And and it's going to be a time of terror, of celestial uh, phenomena. Uh, going on, do you see? It's going to be all kinds of stuff going haywire. What about the New Testament? What does the New Testament uh, do with this? Well, the New Testament uses it in Acts 2. And I'm not going to go to Acts 2. Sorry about this. Acts 2 is Pentecost. And people say, well, this was fulfilled at Pentecost. Okay? Uh, actually wasn't fulfilled at Pentecost, okay? Because no, it, none of the, the things that happened or that are described in Joel 2 happened at Pentecost. So what on earth is Peter doing? Is he jumping a gun? Is he uh, not studied his Bible carefully? No, because Peter is, is saying that in anticipation of the people repenting. And if they'd have done that, these things would have have happened, okay? These things would have happened. And, ch- and chapter 3, uh, verses 19 through 21, is very clear on that. Okay, repent, and then the times of restoration will come from the presence of the Lord. Yes? But they didn't, so the Lord didn't come back. And the times of restoration didn't come in. Do you see that? Because the times of restoration in chapter 3 is the regeneration that Paul... that um, Matthew writes about in uh, Matthew 19, verse 21. It's the second coming in the kingdom, the setting up of the kingdom. 
All right, which we've already covered somewhat in this uh, in these studies. But First Corinthians. Now we've seen First Thessalonians. Okay, but First Corinthians. What's going on there? First Corinthians chapter five. Verse uh, 3. For indeed, as absent in the body, but, in, but present in spirit, I have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And if you have the New King James or King James, it says the Lord Jesus. Okay. Um, I'm okay with, uh, because I'm using the New King James and I like the majority text, but uh, if you've got a modern translation, it says the day of the Lord. Now, I think the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord Jesus are the same thing because of what we've already seen in Zechariah 14 and so on. Yes? And and, uh, Isaiah... 61 and particularly Isaiah 63 which we're going to see parallels Revelation 19 okay the second coming of Christ so um, what is this though what's the day of the Lord here um, this is a, a sinner uh, sorry this is a saint in this church who has sinned grievously and they need to deliver him over to Satan. Okay? Kind of scary stuff. What for? Uh, To get killed. For the destruction of the flesh. Not, I mean, they're not going to kill him. Alright? But they're going to deliver him over to Satan. Satan, you can have him. Punishment. That seems to be what's going on here. Yeah? Why? So that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here the day of the Lord, I mean, he's not worried about all of this stuff, is he? I mean, he's saved. And he's he's dead for millennia anyway. So he's not worried about all of this stuff. So what's the day of the Lord as far as this guy is concerned? Is it sheep and goats judgment? Well, no, because sheep and goats judgment is the nations that are alive and come through the time and Christ judges the sheep and the goats, which ones are going to come into the kingdom and which ones are going to go into punishment, yes? So it's not that. So the day of the Lord here seems to have a different connotation, doesn't it? In... uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5. It seems to be, to me, judgment seat of Christ. That's where I'm going to, that's where I put that, the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? And so it's all in that end time period, but it designates now here seem, seemingly the Bema seat. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, 
and uh, verse 13, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood as in part that we are your boast as you are also ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now here it's not um, just the day of the Lord, it is the day of the Lord Jesus, which is probably the second coming, or the judgment seat. Okay? Well, you, know, you can pick either of them. <laughs> So, but again, that's not so much this, I don't think, because this is uh, talking about like blessings, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, boasting. You know, it's it's not this is a churchy thing. It's not it's not to do with anything to do with the unsaved. All right, I said I was going to throw a cat among the pigeons. <laughs> Peter does this. Okay, Second Peter three. Now, Peter, um, Peter's a bit of a nuisance anyway. <laughs> but this is a, this passage is a tough passage. Okay, I mean, somewhat. We, especially if you're premillennial. Okay, especially if you're premillennial. Let's read it. Um, verse, uh, let's see. Verse 5. You'll see the context as we begin reading. Second Peter 3 verse 5. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the, the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Okay, he's, he's there with Paul. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Okay. And then he continues actually. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right, Peter, come on. What are you playing at, you know? I mean, you're messing everything up here. Because um, this looks as though what Peter is, is uh, saying is that 
um, the day of the Lord comes, the day of the Lord is is just everything fries. Okay, everything gets obliterated, it melts. Okay, and then what do you have? New heavens and new earth. Yeah. Uh, so what happens to premillennialism here? What happens to the the Lord coming back and establishing His thousand year reign? Do you see this? And it's talking about the, the, the second coming of the Lord in, in context here. But it talks about when he comes back, all oh, this is going to happen. Well, if the day of the Lord is that, then, okay, there's not really time for any of this. I mean, what's the point for any of this anyway? Because the whole thing's going to burn. You see, it doesn't, it, it doesn't seem to go with, with this. What's the point in doing these little distresses and little darknesses and so on if you're going to destroy the whole cosmos anyway? <laughs> now, some people say, though, this is not, this is not talking about a cosmic destruction, although it looks it, like it to me. It's talking about kind of a, using hyperbole to describe, uh, the Lord coming in wrath and burning up the, parts of the earth, but the, the, the same earth will be regenerated again. Well, no, I'm not sure that that's true because he says, I look for a new heavens and a new earth. And he talks about this heavens and this earth. So it does seem to be the whole shooting match, doesn't it? Yeah? So that doesn't work. Um, how, do we, how do we deal with this? Notice Peter's style. Okay, notice what he's doing here. Uh, look at verse 5 again. For this they willfully get, forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Okay, that's Genesis 1. Right there. By which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Well, that's a thousand years or so later at, at the flood. Yes? Do you see that? See what he's done? In other words, he's, he's, the word is conflate. He's conflating these two things together. Not the same, but he's briskly going through these, these views. He's trying to get to somewhere. Now, where he's trying to get to is new heavens and new earth. Okay? So he's not talked about the reign of God. He's not, oh, the reign of Christ. He's not talked about any of that stuff. I mean, he, does, he, he talks about um, the times of restoration in Acts 3. He's one of the, the disciples that asks Christ, will you at this time restore the kingdom of it to Israel in Acts 1? So he believes in it. But here he's just hopping time periods, you see? He's getting a bunch of stuff together. And he's saying, look, you need to understand all of this will eventually vanish and be replaced by new heavens and new earth. That's his point. But he does jump over long periods of time, which means there is time here. He's not excluding a, a thousand-year reign of Christ from the time that Christ returns to the dissolving of the new heavens and new, of the present heavens and earth. All right, ready with that? Mm-hmm. So, can you see another spanner in the works here? Because there is one. This is the day of the Lord. And it, it, 
is after the thousand-year reign. Or at least it includes the thousand-year reign and, and Christ coming back, the thousand-year reign, and then the dissolution of the elements. Do you see that? It's not just this. Do you see that? Okay, it's not just this. It's much more than this. So Peter, um, what Peter does, see he knows his Old Testament, okay? And what Peter's doing is that he's looking at the second coming and he's looking at the day of wrath and then he's, he understands that there will be a rain because that's what uh, many of these passages speak about. Okay, afterwards, blessing on the people. And Jeremiah talks about it, and so on. And uh, Joel does. And then the whole lot's going to be dissolved. Where else do you see that that timeline? You see it in the book of Revelation. Okay, so let's go there. So the book of Revelation here. First of all, chapter 6. Book of Revelation chapter 6. We've got a lot, we've got a long way to go, guys, okay? We're not, we're not halfway through yet, okay? <clears throat> I don't know if you can open that window a little bit. Whether there's a screen there, or maybe not be a screen there. Anyway, are you warm enough or too warm or are you guys okay? It's warm in here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. We'll invite the butterfly, the uh, moths in. Yes. Okay, I'm going to read chapter six. is a short chapter. Okay. And there's a reason I'm going to read the whole chapter. Revelation six. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse. In fact, where's me? I need some room on this. This is not big enough. All right. So I'm going to get rid of this stuff. Okay. So look, what we're going to do is is Revelation 6 here, okay? Not with that, I'm not. Okay. Revelation 6, okay? First seal, white horse rider, okay? And he's conquering and going forward, conquering and to conquer, okay? Is this Jesus? Doubtful because of who comes with him, okay? Um, The next... Uh, seal is opened and I heard the second living creature saying come and see another horse fiery red went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth well since Jesus is the prince of peace he's not going to be accompanied by somebody who's going to take everything all the peace away that Jesus lays down is he that's that's illogical alright so you've got the second seal Okay, red horse, rider, 
and uh, this guy takes peace away. Third seal. He opened the third seal. I heard the living creature say, come and see. And I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart for a wheat, <coughs> quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not hurt the oil and the wine. This is a time of, um, of, uh, inflation and, and need, you know, maybe even famine. Yeah, so a black horse rider okay and we'll just say here it brings famine alright fourth seal when he opened the fourth seal I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying come and see so I looked and behold a pale horse And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades was followed with him. Now look, if the white horse rider is Jesus, the Bible says evil communications corrupt good manners. Okay? He's with the wrong bunch here. Okay? This isn't Jesus. Alright? Death death, and Hades followed him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Okay? So, uh, here, pale horse, rider, and um, he's, he's death, he's called death, and Hades follows him. Okay? And so, basically, uh, Just killing everyone, alright? We'll just basically say that. Okay. Question. Who, who is sending forth these riders? Look at it. Who is... Yeah. Yeah. Notice, okay... Verse 4, the red horse, it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Do you see that? And that people should kill one another. You see that? Look at the uh, verse, uh, uh, is it 9? Verse 8. Power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and so on. Power. Where from? And where's the permission coming from? Satan? Well, Satan's not opening the seals. The lamb is. This is coming from the throne room. Do you remember chapters 4 and 5? This is not Satan. This is, this is the lamb. Alright? This is the lamb. Fifth seal. He opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Then a white robe was given to them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellows, fellow servants and their brethren who will be killed as they were was completed. And in the sixth seal, I looked when he opened the sixth... Oh, sorry, I've got to write this down, don't I? Fine, fifth seal. All right, fifth seal. Okay. Souls of saints under the altar. You can close that if you want now. Yeah, okay, you did do. Okay, the sixth seal. When he opened the, um, I've done the fifth. Okay. Sixth seal. Verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, by the way, in a in number of contexts about the end times, there is an earthquake mentioned. For example, in Zechariah uh, chapter 14. Okay. Uh, a, a number of places, actually. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Where are we that, with that one? Oh, we're in here, yes? Okay. <clears throat> um, I'm looking in the wrong place. And the stars of heaven fell from the earth, so the fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a, scro- as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand okay so uh, uh, verses 15 and 16 there that is uh, quotation looking uh, seemingly in, in Isaiah 2. And if you look at Isaiah 24, or I'll go there and you can stay where you are. Isaiah 24. <clears throat> and um, where is it? Is it verse 20? So, some of the same stuff is, is uh, said. The earth is violent, bro- violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is uh, shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. It's transgression, you know, like an earthquake. It's transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of the exalted ones and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and there will uh, and he sorry and will sh- be shut up in the prison. After many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. Um, so. Notice here that the day of, of the Lamb's wrath 
is noted in the sixth seal, the great day of his wrath. Okay? That's when he's acting at the sixth seal. Do you see that? But the problem is that... um, Look at all of these different things that are happening. These appear to be second coming events. Okay? Second coming events. Uh, So the sixth seal here is uh, the Lamb's wrath. But here's an issue. Okay, even though we can grant that the great day of the Lamb's wrath is the sixth seal, what about this other stuff? What do you call that? Isn't this God's wrath too? Of course it is. See, this is, this is God's wrath too. And it culminates in this, but this is God's wrath. I mean, it's bad stuff, okay? And it's 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 issued by God's command. Okay? This happens because God wants it to happen. He's giving power to these guys. Okay? He's equipping these people to do this. These are not these agents are or at least this one here, these are not sent by Satan. They appear to be sent by God. Now, the white horse rider is another kettle of fish. Who's the white horse rider? Not really sure. Could it be the Antichrist? Possibly. You know, lots of premillennial teachers think it is, and it could well be. But whoever it is, he's not a good guy, all right? Because he's got bad company. (laughs) So he's somebody who is also set forward or released by... None of these are nice guys but is released by the will of the Lamb. Okay? Only the Lamb has the authority, remember, to open the seals. And these seals deal with the end times. Only the Lamb has the authority to let these things loose. Now, uh, Jesus said, nobody knows except the Father. Well, that's true. Okay, it was true for Christ on earth as he was. Okay, but when it's time, at least we can say this the Father asks who can open this scroll, which is the end time scroll. So then everyone will know the time, won't they? (laughs) It's just an an, issue with who's going to open it, which is only one who's qualified. All right, chapter 19 of Revelation. Chapter 19 of Revelation. Um, We'll start with uh, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Okay, he doesn't, he's not conquering and to conquer, same as this guy. Okay. And he's going in righteousness. So it's not the same. This guy is not the same as the white horse rider in chapter 19. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. This guy had nobody following him on white horses. He had these guys following on different coloured horses. Um... Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with it, he sh- with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. That's from Psalm 2 and uh, different places in the book of Revelation. It's talking about the rule of, of Christ. Uh, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh and name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, the robe's dipped in blood, just like the robe of the rider in Isaiah 63. This is the second coming of Christ. Do you agree? Yes? Uh, and then it talks about the beast being defeated and the armies being defeated and the, there's a feast for the birds of the air and so on right there. Then you have Satan bound in chapter 20 and he's bound for a thousand years. And at the end of a thousand years, Satan is released and he gets zapped. And then what happens? You have the great white throne judgment. Okay, when everybody, when people are judged, and I think this is where Peter is alluding to in Second Peter chapter 3 about these people, these mockers and so on. Okay. And what happens after that? Uh, it says here that, uh, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, whose, from whose face the, face the earth and the heaven, the heaven, I'll say that again, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. Well, how did they flee away? Well, probably because they were burned to a cinder. Yeah, Second Peter chapter 3. I mean, it fits. See how it fits. But it's, this is Second this is Peter chapter 3 drawn out. Alright? That's what I'm trying to say here. But according to... Peter, it's all the day of the Lord. Isn't it, you see? Particularly the end bit. The the dissolution of the heavens and the earth. Particularly that. Chapter 21, New Jerusalem. New heavens, new earth. Yeah, Just as Peter said. So Peter doesn't destroy premillennialism there once you understand that he's kind of hopping over time periods, but he's, he's kind of cramming things together. But he does call it the day of the Lord, which means the day of the Lord is a lot, you know, it, it's not just this concentrated time, it can be a, a whole bunch of, a lot of time. So now we understand that about the day of the Lord, we'll summarise and we'll just say that the day of the Lord can be a general term for a specific judgment of God and and pouring out of God's wrath in time. Like Ezekiel. It can also be a... uh, There's one more passage I've got to go to. uh, But it can also be a... um, the time of the second coming of Christ, the day of Christ. 
but it can also be uh, a particular time of intensific- intensified persecution and terror and darkness and so on at the end of time. It's often used in that way. Or it can be the whole shooting match, that, that whole um, period, can't it? It can be that period from, uh, if you like, the tribulation right the way through to um, the dissolutions of the present heavens and earth. In Revelation chapter 6, the day of the Lord's wrath, okay, it is, let's say, the day of the Lord, okay, but all of this is wrath. So it's just the intensification of the wrath that's already there, do you see? And many of this stuff come, comes, can be located over here. Things like famine, you see, that's over here. Do you see? That's Day of the Lord stuff. And, uh, you know, the sun and moon not giving darkness and so on. That's over here. And uh, taking peace away, that's, you know, in this area. It's cruel. Yeah? So, do you understand what I'm saying? It's that, it's that you cannot really nail the Day of the Lord down and say it always is one thing. That's my, my big point here. Although it, it does have a, a meaning and uh, an, an importance to it, you have to be careful about watching your context, okay? And if you're going to use the Day of the Lord to locate the rapture, you have to be careful. All right. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And then we'll go to 1 Thessalonians 4. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we've already been here a few times. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ... Yes, and sometimes you may have what? The day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the uh, the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and is, that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And talks about the the, uh, the signs and wonders and so on that are being worked at that time. Uh, so this is the day of the Lord too. What seems to be on Paul's mind here is that the Thessalonians were thinking it, it was the day of the Lord then. He says, no, 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 no. The, the day of the Lord that I told you about, okay, 1 Thessalonians 5, the, the day of the, that doesn't happen until there's a, a falling away. And we've talked about that, the apostasy of the church. Okay, first. And then uh, some, a man is revealed. The man of sin is revealed. Okay? So, that's part of the day of the Lord too. Alright, so we've got all of our ducks in a row, more or less. We've got ducks anyway. We've got ducks on the wall, alright? First Thessalonians chapter 4. 
All right. Did you write this stuff down? Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take it off. Yes. All right. <clears throat> so now we're talking about the rapture of the church and the saints. I'll just say the rapture of the saints. Okay. Now the only place that we can find this term, okay, is in First Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, we'll see it here as we read. Uh, verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring those Bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first." Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's important qualification. Thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another <coughs> with these words. Do you see that? Okay. So, um, what we have in this passage is, uh, is, is worth noting. As far as the day of the Lord teaching is, was concerned, Paul said, you know this. Yeah, didn't he say that? You don't need me, I, I teach you, he says. What does he say about the rapture? About this teaching? I don't want you to be ignorant of it. Okay? This is, seems to be a new thing that he's, he's introducing to them. So that's the... Uh, uh, Particularly about those who have, have already died, those who have fallen asleep, verse 13. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's the gospel, even so, God will bring those with him those who are asleep in Jesus. Don't worry about the fact that people are dying around you. And then we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means proceed or go before those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we'll be, notice verse 17, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Where? To the clouds, in the air, yes. Okay, caught up. Okay, so that word there is uh, 17. Is that right? No, 16, yeah? It is 17. All right. So this this word is harpazo, okay? In the Greek, it means to snatch, okay? To snatch away. And which has the idea of suddenness and also, um, you know, it's it's not completely unexpected, like you know a thief will do that. Yes, 
and uh, it's the Latin term. Okay, is rapturo. <coughs> so that's where we get our term rapture from. Okay, so it means this, snatching away. All right. So rapture, the, the word rapture is not in the English Bible, it's in the Latin one. Uh, but it's, it's talking about this snatching away. All right. I mean, caught up. And that's it. There's your rapture teaching. <laughs> so that it's going to happen is a sure thing. When it's going to happen, that's the that's the poser, you see. It's going to happen on the day of the Lord. That's the problem. And we have to be we have to do some study. And the best we can do when it comes to the rapture is we can do a, a, a good educated guess. Okay? Notice, just, uh, I, I rubbed it off. C1 is a direct okay, quotation from Scripture. You can absolutely go home with that one. C2, you can go home with that one. That's an inevitable um, um, conclusion. From what scripture says, okay, you have to come to an inevitable view about that what, of what that is. C3, inference to the best explanation. This is where we are. C3, an inference to the best explanation. Now, because it's an inference to the best explanation, okay, we don't go fisticuffs about it. It's not scripture. What we do... Scripture. What we do is that we we try to do our best with the the data that Scripture provides us with. Now we have to understand what's going on here because we have to cull from different places of of the Bible. We need to be careful where we're culling from because maybe if we're not careful, we can pick and choose things that back our theory. But whenever you're doing an inference to the best explanation, you gather the data, you say this best fits, this best fits the data, this, this picture, and it has the fewest problems. Okay, so it's not just that, that this fits the data, but this one has the fewest problems as well. Okay? And so when we're dealing with the rapture teaching, that's what we're dealing with that, those two sides of the coin alright so let's dive in here ok but remember this is it ok so this is what you know uh, people trying to say you know um, trying to divide over the pre-tribulational rapture or post-tribulational rapture this is not something God wants you to divide over um, you can certainly agree and disagree about it, okay? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. And as I will show here, certain theological systems like certain views of the rapture and don't like other views of the rapture. So it broadens out into, very often, amillennialism, postmillennialism, okay, historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism. Do you see? That, that's how it, 
it often bronze out. It, it becomes a theologically charged view. Okay, so now we're on the, the, the rapture. So, there are different views. We have the wrong pen, <laughs> so we'll do brown. Okay. So we have post trib. Post trib is not the same as post mill because the tribulation is not the millennium. Okay? So please try and keep these things straight. Okay? But post millennials will be post tribbers. Alright? But they won't mean, by tribulation, they won't mean what you mean or what we mean. Okay, <laughs> but post-tribbers. Okay, uh, then there are mid-tribbers, and I'm not going to deal very much with mid-tribbers. I think I'll be quite honest with you. I think mid-trib, which hardly anyone is mid-tribulation rapture nowadays, but I think the mid-tribulation rapture view will have its day again. Uh, there's a reason for that, and I think that's got to do particularly with the demarcation, a very strong demarcation that there is in Daniel and Revelation on the halfway mark, times, time, times, and half a time. Okay? Uh, because that's such a strong teaching, um, I think people can make a case for a mid-trib rapture. I don't, I'm, I don't agree with a mid-trib rapture. I'm just saying that, that a case can be made. Just people don't want to make it nowadays. Uh, then you've got the pre-wrath rapture, which is the newest kid on the block. But this one has is, is, uh, got some impressive kind of credentials and I'm going to spend quite a bit of uh, time on, on that one. And then, of course, you've got the pre-trib rapture okay so these are basically the views all right now in order to kind of get through some of this this stuff notice um can i get rid of this come here notice that if you are post millennial Okay. A post-millennialist, remember, believes that um, there's the cross, okay? And period of time until the second coming, all right? And the post-millennialist believes that the church, through the Holy Spirit, man, sorry about that, but the church will bring in the millennium. Okay? So somewhere along the time gap between the first and the second comings, the church, through the work of the Holy Spirit, will evangelize the world and most of the world will be saved or influenced strongly uh, by the word of God. And that the church will bring in the kingdom. It will be the means by which the Holy Spirit brings the millennium in. So, um, 
where do you put the tribulation in a view like that? You know, it's it's hard to locate the tribulation. So what you what you probably do is that you would say, well, this first bit before the church actually brings in the millennium, that would that that would all be the tribulation. Or you might want to say, no, there'll be an, an intensification here against the church before the Holy Spirit overcomes it. So you could have the tribulation being at a specific point here. Yes, um, I don't know many that do that. Um, or you could say that, um, um, oh, what was the other one? That, that, yeah, there are, there are pockets of tribulation. Okay? The church goes through different areas, times of persecution in different parts of the world. Okay? So that, that, that's kind of your choices with what you do with the tribulation here. So, uh, what about the rapture though? What do you do with that? The rapture doesn't have a place, does it, in this in this kind of view? What do you do with it? Because because the church is going to bring in the kingdom before the second coming. Do you see that? So they're going to kind of go soft on this snatching away and taking away of the of the saints. Um, it's it's going to be viewed as 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 the saints' death or something like that. Okay, generally, but there's no real. The rapture doesn't fit into a post-millennial view very well. Not at least in the way that Paul describes it here, as a, a snatching out and meeting the Lord in the air. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could have it here. You could have it here. Okay, the millennium's been brought in. Okay, Jesus comes back, but not before he has a get-together with the, the church here and we all come back again. But that doesn't seem to be... Well, I mean, what's the point in that? I might as well make it all the way down. I mean, if he's in the clouds, he's only got a few more thousand <laughs> feet to come. You know? So it doesn't seem to be sensible. You know, you can't make sense of it that way. What's what I'm saying? So that's, that's the issue with the post-millennial view. Now, what about the R-millennial view? So we'll get rid of this and we'll just... Get rid of the whole thing here. Okay, so with the R millennial view, we'll do it in red so you don't get uh, blinded, as it were, by the colours. You know, you, your mind distinguishes easier. So in an R millennial view, what's their view? Cross, okay, second coming again. And uh, in the R millennial view, we're already in the millennium. All of this is the millennium. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's already, we're in it now. Christ is reigning and, and okay. Uh, by the way, we're also in the tribulation. <laughs> we're also in the tribulation too. Okay, so uh, according to G.K. Beale and, and other millennial teachers, we're in the tribulation as well as the millennium. So, uh, let's see. What do we do with, which one of these is an millennialist going to go for? Well, do they believe in a tribulation? Many millennialists do believe that there will be 
a kind of a tribulation, all right, at the end. A testing of the saints. Remember I said that at the end they believe in kind of an apostasy and they wouldn't have a problem with a, a general kind of tribulation uh, thing going on there. But most of them will say this is all the tribulation. Okay? So some of them will, will designate it here, but most of them will say the whole of church history is, is the tribulation as well as the kingdom or part of the kingdom. Uh, so what about the rapture? Okay, well, it's the same problem, isn't it? Okay. Um, if all of this is the tribulation, mid-tribulation, well, did, you know, unless we're, Jesus is not coming back for another 3,000 years, then, uh, you know, is there going to be a mid-trib rapture? The saints are going to be called up. But what about the saints, you know, if the church is all getting called up, there won't be any saints left on earth. Okay? So that seems to be pointless. And of course they wouldn't, they, they would say that, and that's pointless. I mean, that's, that might, that's your pre-tribulational view. You know, it doesn't fit an our millennial understanding. Uh, certainly a pre-trib rapture doesn't. Okay? So if they believe in a rapture at all, where are they going to put it? Here. So again, they're going to be taken up here to come down again. Okay? A yo-yo rapture. <laughs> Doing, you know, so. Now, this is how they define it. People like Ben Witherington, N.T. Wright, and people like that, influential uh, writers, will say, you, you pre-tribbers, you dispensationalists, you don't understand the culture. Okay? This has got nothing to do with just being snatched out and, and meeting God in, the Lord in the air and being taken off to heaven. Don't you understand that this has to do with the custom of the bride going out to meet the bridegroom and then coming back to the house with the bridegroom? Really? That's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say anything about a custom like that. That's been imported into what Paul's saying. Furthermore, what Paul is saying here doesn't seem to uh, uh, to match that because he says uh, that uh, uh, by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus shall we always be with the Lord. Well, again, you get the same thing. Um, there's no custom going on here. And um, he's writing to Thessalonians. He's not writing to Jews. Yeah, he's writing to Gentiles. And they didn't have this custom. Do you see? So, this is, this is, uh, our millennial scholars importing, uh, profane, because it's, even if it's Jewish, it's not in the Bible, so it's profane, uh, I would say, uh, tradition to interpret the scriptures. Well, you know what Jesus said about interpreting the scriptures through tradition? You set it at naught through your tradition. Do you see? 
So our millennialists will be, if they believe in a rapture at all, will be post-trib. And, and the trib is all this, generally. But they don't really believe in a rapture that way. They, they believe that, yeah, we might get caught out and then come back with them. Okay? So that's that's their view, our millennial. You, you, you with me here? <clears throat> okay. So, pre-wrath. Okay. Now, um... Oh, sorry. Historic pre. Historic pre. Let's get let's get this. Historic pre mill. Historical covenant pre millennialists will agree uh, very much with our millennialists most of the time in their interpretation of the prophets and and prophecy and so on. But they just believe that there is a, a millennial reign after the. Coming of Christ. Whereas the Armillennialists don't. They believe new heavens, new earth straight away here. As do post-millennialists. And so uh, historic pre-mills will generally be post-tribs. Okay? They will believe often uh, that there will be a time of tribulation. Although they're, they're, they tend to be fuzzy about a whole bunch of stuff. You know, they're fuzzy... Um, about how long the millennium is. Is it a thousand years? Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, they, uh, they, and they're fuzzy about, um, about what the rapture is and, and, and so on. But yeah, if, if anywhere, they're going to stick it generally at the end there. Okay? They're fuzzy about the tribulation often and so on. So that's historic pre-mills. Um, there are different brands of them, okay? But generally, they're, they're nearly all post-tribs. I mean, almost to a man, they're, they're post-tribs. Uh, certain of them, there's one fairly influential one, a scholar called Craig uh, Blomberg, who says there's no point in the rapture. I just don't see any point in the rapture. And so, he doesn't really go for the rapture teaching at all. He's still... Historic pre-mill, but you see, that's typical historic pre-mills. They're kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I believe there'll be a kingdom, but that's about, that's the only important thing. Okay? George Eldon Ladd, who's a very influential uh, writer on these things, he takes it all from the New Testament. He doesn't go to the Old Testament for any teaching on this at all. Okay? He says that the Old Testament, you can't, can't get this teaching from the Old Testament. For the kingdom of Christ on earth. No, not Church of Christ, no. 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 That's what our son believes. Church of Christ. Does he? Yeah, I didn't say Church of Christ. No, I did. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so get rid of this. Get rid of that. Alright, so um Generally, dispensationalists, okay, dispensational premillennialists. Well, you can have dispensational premillennialists who are this, 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 or this, okay, which is why they squabble. All right, the others don't squabble so much because the rapture is not a big deal to, to them anyway, and it's like it's like there wasn't, there's nothing to squabble about, you know. They're basically yeah, post trib, you know. 
pass the salt. <laughs> but but um, when it comes to to dispensationalists, um, they do. Okay. <sighs> Rarely will you find a dispensationalist who is a post-tribulationist who say that the church says that the church goes through the tribulation. Okay, so what I'm going to do with uh, with this group is I'm just going to start it with the tribulation. Okay, where's me pen? All right, so this is the trib. Okay, T for trib. No, it's not the cross. All right. <laughs> All right, so tribulation, okay? And then the second coming of Christ and then the kingdom uh, going on from there. So, uh, Robert Gundry is probably the best known proponent of the post-trib rapture and he believes that the, there is nothing in uh, the New Testament to um, d- dissuade him from the view that the church goes through the tribulation. Okay? He's dispensational, he believes, he's premillennial, believes in the kingdom. Okay, but he thinks the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation. And the saints will be taken out to preserve them. Okay? Just before the, the wrath hits. Okay? So basically, it's simultaneous with the second coming, but they're taken up to uh, the clouds so that they don't have to be present for all of the travail that's going to happen on earth. Okay? Um, uh, He will teach, and some of them will teach, that that, that the saints are protected uh, through the tribulation somewhat, just as the uh, 144,000 Jews are protected. They're sealed, yes? In chapter 7 and chapter 14. So he would kind of extend that somewhat to the church too. But most, I mean, there are some, there are some passages that teach that. The, the biggest one is Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and then the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, that we'll look at in a minute. All I'll say about Second Thessalonians chapter 1 is that that is the strongest post-trib view. It is the strongest post-trib view. Um, and it's not the easiest one to get a hold of, but I would say that it is, it is feasible and plausible that what Paul is doing there, again, he's doing a Peter. He's kind of focusing on the second coming as the time of wrath. Okay, so that's why he's jumping over to, to that. Um, he's not saying that, that's, that that is when the rapture is going to happen. He doesn't actually mention the rapture that, in that passage. So there's your post-trib. Mid-trib I'm not going to deal with. Pre-wrath. Alright, we've got to go through this fairly quickly. Okay? But the pre-wrath view is that uh, the Antichrist signs the covenant. Remember Daniel 9? for seven years. So the tribulation is seven years long. It has a mid part, okay, three and a half years in. Okay. Um, the first 
part here is uh, the beginning of sorrows. If you go to Matthew 24, okay, you'll need to go there, is the beginning of sorrows. And uh, the first three horsemen of the apocalypse will basically be riding around here this time. Um, same stuff as, uh, as the abomination of, set, of uh, desolation is set up here in the midpoint. Okay. A of D, abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel. That's Daniel 12 and from Matthew 24, verse 22. Uh, oh, sorry, verse 15, Matthew 24, 15. And also the two witnesses will begin to prophesy at this point. Okay. Here. So that, we agree with that. Okay, we wouldn't have a problem with that. What we would not agree with is that the church is going through this. In the pre-wrath position. Okay, church is going all the way through this. Sometime in the second part of the week, and they're not sure when, okay, um, but if you look at, at the charts that they put forward, they normally, and they, they, I don't want to misrepresent them because they don't believe in a three-quarter thing, you know, of the way through rapture, and they get very annoyed if you say that. But their charts generally have the rapture three-quarters of the way through. <laughs> okay, so uh, at some point, um, you have the rapture. Okay, and I know I put it three quarters, and I don't didn't do that to annoy them. I'm following one of their charts here, and because uh, it's a complex view, I think. Uh, but this is generally where they put it. But it could be here, it could be here, it could be here. I mean, they don't know. Okay, so we'll put question mark. They say that. Um, the reason that the rapture is here, okay, is because in Matthew 24:22 it says that unless that tribulation was curtailed, okay, was shortened, that all the saints would be, all the elect would perish. Yes, you see that in verse 22. So. That being the case, they say, this is why the rapture happens, happens here. Okay? Now also, very importantly for this view, is that the, they divide the period of trouble, okay, this is the birth pangs. Now this period, the last three and a half years, is divided into, uh, several portions, okay? You have the, uh, Brown. You have the wrath of Satan again against the church, okay? And uh, that includes the other horsemen of the apocalypse, okay? Coming up to the uh, the sixth seal, okay? And the sixth seal, remember, was the the day of the Lamb's wrath. No, well, if it's the day of the Lamb's wrath, then it can't be the wrath of Satan anymore. 
Okay, so then, so they divide this off, okay, and then you have the, uh, the wrath of God. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says that we will not endure, uh, you know, see the wrath of God. Do you see? Which means that at the timing of the sixth seal and the changeover from the wrath of God to the wrath of God, that's the wrath of Satan to the wrath of God, I mean, good times, yeah? Um, that's when the rapture must happen because the church cannot be under the wrath of God. Do you see that? Uh, so they put the rapture here. Pre-wrath. This is what they mean. They don't mean pre-wrath of Satan. They mean pre-wrath of God. So that's why it's called the pre-wrath rapture. Okay? Uh, hinges a lot on, uh, uh, well, two passages. Second Thessalonians that we looked at. And I think a plausible interpretation of that passage. They say that it says that uh, this uh, day of the Lord will not begin. They say this is the day of the Lord here. Okay, the wrath of God is the day of the Lord. Okay. Um, and um, the uh, where was I? Oh, Second Thessalonians. So. Um, the day of the Lord will not come until the man of sin is revealed. Okay? So he's revealed here. And the day of the Lord is going to be here. And the day of the Lord is the day of wrath. So the rapture is going to happen when the day of the Lord starts. But the day of the Lord then becomes a specific period of time. The day of God's wrath at the end of the tribulation of the sixth seal. You see? Um, including the sixth seal, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls in Revelation. It's all it's all God's wrath there. Boom. And the church goes all the way through until here. All right. So, um, so are you in Matthew twenty-four? Yes. Okay. So Matthew 24, obviously this is very important that they, they see the church in Matthew 24. Okay? Because if the church isn't in Matthew 24, the pre-wrath position is destroyed. Because it has to have, uh, I mean, beginning of sorrows is from Matthew 24. Okay? So, you have to, you have to fit, uh, the church into Matthew 24. So Matthew 24. They're asking about the end of, uh, of things, the end of the age, okay? Ah, now we did some of this, didn't we? We've done this before. So I'm gonna pick it up until verse 13, uh, verse 13. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Okay? Jehovah's Witnesses love that one. But uh, the end means the end here. The end they asked about. Okay? And he that endures to the end shall be saved. Okay? So it means that you know, there are saints who will go through the tribulation. Okay? Not take the mark of the beast. And they'll, they will end up 
having salvation, okay? Yes? And sometimes, they, sometimes they're not going to make it through to the end of, of uh, the tribulation, but they're going to make it through as far as they can get before they get killed. Yes? But Do you see that? That's what, and it says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the, of the world as a witness to all the nations and then will the end come. So a gospel of a kingdom has got to be preached here. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea, not San Francisco, not London, not Paris, not Delhi, not anywhere like that. This is very Israel focused. Judea. Flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Again, that's that's very uh, Semitic. Uh, let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Why wouldn't... What's the Sabbath got to do with it? Because Jews, okay, keep the Sabbath. That's why, you know, the Yom Kippur War, they were attacked on the Sabbath day. Okay? Uh, for then there will be great tribulation. When? When the... Um, uh, just after the, the abomination of desolation is set up. Okay? Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Uh, the pre-wrath guys say that's one reason for having the rapture here, so that that uh, the days are shortened for them. Do you see? Problem. I don't see the church here. I'm seeing Israel. Do you see? I'm seeing Israel. Now, uh, a big problem, the biggest problem for the pre-wrath position, for, in my point of view, is that they have God dealing with the Jews and dealing with the church at the same time. Well, how can God be dealing with the Jews and the church at the same time? If he's dealing with the, the Jews, Jeremiah 30, you have to look your notes, Jeremiah 30, um, uh, Daniel 12, Okay, this time of wrath and here, Jewish in orientation. Okay, then he's he's trying he's getting them ready. Okay, for uh, mourning when they see him whom they pierced. Yeah, Zechariah twelve. It, it's Jewish focused, but but he, it's like he has two programs going at the same time. He's dealing with the church. Well, well, hold on a minute. But a Jew that repents and believes in Jesus is added to the church. So, do you see? It's like God has two programs. Is he dealing with the Jews or isn't he? So there's a problem there for me. I have a real problem with this. Uh, this is very Jewish focused. Uh, then if anyone says, look, here is Christ and there do not believe it, for cr- false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect. This is the elect of Israel. See, I have told you beforehand, therefore if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out, and you know all that stuff. 
Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, all that stuff, they're the Lord's stuff that we looked at. Um, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. It says immediately after the tribulation, these things will happen and the Son of Man will come back. You see that? It's, there isn't time for this stuff. Okay? The tribulation ends and then these things occur as portents for the second coming of Christ. And then boom, he's back. Alright? And th- this, is, this is just too neat. Okay? Too neat. I'll show you another problem with this in a minute. Uh, verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Not the nations, the tribes. And they see the Son of Man coming in clouds, the clouds of heaven and power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, just as, as said in the uh, some of the parables in Matthew 13. Uh, then he goes on and he talks about the days of Noah. Okay, and that that's, that's what the days of the Son of Man will be. And then he says this, verse 40. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So there you are, you see. There's the rapture. And it's at the end of the tribulation, just before the, you know, before all this stuff. So, post-tribulationists go to the same passage, but pre-Rathers believe they've got the upper hand, they've got a better system because of, you know, the, the uh, way they've worked this out, and the Second Thessalonians thing too. Um, they believe that, that the, the pre-Rath is a, as a, if you like, a honed and, and nuanced a better view of the post-trib. It's a derivation of the post-trib, but it, instead of being post-trib, it's pre-wrath. Okay? Because of the, the, diff- the wrath of God and the day of the Lord stuff. Here's the question though. Is Matthew 24 a rapture? Is the taking a rapture? I don't know. It certainly looks like it. Well, is it or isn't it? Here's the thing. What does it mean by being taken? Okay, what does it mean by being taken? Does it it mean being snatched away to meet the Lord in the air? Not necessarily. It doesn't. By the way, I'm okay with it being rapture. Okay, I'm one of the few um, pre-tribbers that is okay with there being a rapture in Matthew 24. Sorry, I almost fell over there. A rapture up here. Okay, I'm okay with that. If this is a rapture, fair enough. It's just not the rapture of the church. Do you see? You see that? Revelation 14. 
We can do this. We can do this, okay? This is the last one, folks. Revelation 14. Okay? 144,000 are seen and they're up in glory. These are Jews, okay? Unless you're an amillennialist. <laughs> then there is uh, a condemnation on those that worship the beast or take his mark. Verse, verses 9 and 10 talks about the wrath of God. They will drink the wine of the wrath of God. And fine. Uh, that will be uh, that that is is uh, defined as as being tormented here in fire and brimstones in the presence of the Lamb. But look at verse fourteen. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and the one uh, on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap for the Time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is, is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. It's a harvest. It's a harvest. When is this? Right, it seems to be right at the end of the tribulation. Babylon's judged and everything. Okay? This could well be a rapture passage to me. But again, it's not... I don't see the church here. The the church isn't mentioned in the book of Revelation after chapter 3. Okay? It becomes very Jewish, very Israel-centered, Jerusalem-centered and so on. So I don't mind that this is some kind of a rapture. But then next, you see another... uh, Sickle. (laughs) Another harvesting. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, not the harvest. For her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Well, there's the wrath of God right there. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Okay, that's the trampling of the winepress, you know. I've trampled the winepress alone, Isaiah 63. That's that. I think. Okay? Second coming. That would be the second coming. If that's the case. Which means the rapture happens just before that. To me. If this is our rapture in uh, 14, 14 through 16, that happens just before it. That's more post-trib than pre-wrath. Although, uh, it does mention the, the, uh, the wrath of God here. So, um, here's the thing. I think this has something to it as far as an explanation of the rapture because it does take seriously uh, Matthew 24. Okay? Many pre-tribbers, when they come to Matthew 24, they say that's a taking away... um, 
Some of them say, taking away to judgment. And the ones that are left are, are okay. Okay? That's reading into it. Some of them say it's a taking away to safety. But, well, how are they taken? You know? Where are they taken? They would say, well, a place where, you know, Jesus isn't stomping on heads, maybe. Yeah, but that's, again, you're reading too much into it, aren't you? If you take the Matthew 24 passage and you... you put it here with the Revelation 14 passage, and people don't take Revelation 14 as seriously as they should, then you have a pretty cogent argument for, I think, uh, some kind of a snatching out, okay, of the elect before the wrath comes. I'd agree with that. I just don't think it's the church. That's my problem. It's not the church. And they say, yeah, but, but you see, we're here, the church just isn't open to wrath, you know, it just goes through this stuff. Yeah, but the tribulation's dealing with Israel. Yeah, the covenant he has made with Israel by the Antichrist. He pursues Israel in uh, Revelation 12. The prophets prophesy in Jerusalem. Do you see? It's, it's Israel-centered because God's dealing with the Jews. In Romans chapter 11, uh, you're told that, uh, that uh, Israel will remain in blindness, the Jews will remain in blindness, until the times of the Gentiles has come. I'll read it to you. I wish I had my Bible. I'll this one. That's, this is my fault. Uh, it says uh, verse 23 of Romans 11 they also if they do not continue in unbelief will be grafted in to the olive tree for God is able to graft them in again for if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree their own olive tree is a covenant Particularly, I think, the Abrahamic covenant. For all, and, and, and maybe even the new covenant, because he will quote two new covenant passages in a minute. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion... And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob and this is the, my covenant that I will make with them when I take away their sins. Um, so it appears to me, this is my view, uh, that the times of the Gentiles ends here and then God's dealing with the Jews through all of this. Which matches Daniel and matches the Old Testament prophecies. Okay? It doesn't match pre-wrath. And and a big problem with all of these uh, post-trib, mid-trib and pre-wrath positions is that they have the church and Israel, God's dealing with both of them at the same time. And that's, you know, theologically that's problematical. Okay? Because in in, uh, the church there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Okay? 
And you could say, yeah, but the church is going through and being protected and he's also dealing with Israel and, and bringing difficulty and, and so on upon them. I understand that, but it's, it's just, to me, it's so messy and I don't see it in Matthew 24. I don't see the church in Matthew 24. It's not there. Okay? This is before the start of the church and as far as as Peter and the, the, the apostles are concerned, he's going back to the Old Testament stuff that they knew, all of that expectation, and there's no church. Now, if he wanted to include the church, he could have said the church because he said in chapter 16, upon this rock I'll build my church. So he said, I will. Why didn't he include the church in, in the Olivet Discourse? Because it's not there. It doesn't, doesn't include them. All right? All right. So, there are some other reasons as well. Um, I think the pre-wrath position is the strongest contender, but I, I really think it has, it has a number of problems. I wish I had more time um, but I think it's it's issue with the day having the day of the Lord just here. Okay, I just I don't think you can do that. Uh, speaking of the of of the wrath um, and, and talking about Satan's wrath and, and God's wrath, I think is too fine. In fact, another problem: uh, Revelation chapter twelve. As I see it, anyway. In Revelation 12, verse 7, the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Okay? And then... It says, uh, woe, verse 12, to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And then the, it says that the, uh, the dragon pursues the woman who's Israel for a time times half a time. Three and a half years, folks. So that means that uh, Satan is cast down here. Or cast out, okay? He's cast out here. And he's, his wrath, yeah, is three and a half years wrong. Okay? It's not like one and a half years, right? To, you know, or two, two years. But it's right there. The short time is three and a half years. When he's persecuting who? The church? No, Israel. There's no Satan's wrath that the church is going through. He's persecuting Israel. So this is why I reject the pre-wrath view. That and there's a a couple of other uh, reasons as well. Um, So the pre-trib view is very straightforward. Okay? But it's more theological. And uh, I don't need to wax eloquent on, on this very much, I don't think. But the pre-trib view is that uh, 
the whole tribulation is called the tribulation because it's the tribulation. And so it's a day of wrath. Why is it a day of wrath? Because the uh, the riders, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, are let loose by the Lamb. Therefore, they signify, yeah, the beginning of sorrows, they be, but they do signify it's coming from God, so it's God's judgment. Okay? Now, the wrath intensifies, and the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, they intensify, so that the bowls, you know, when they're poured out, if you look at them, they can only be, like, within a year or six-month period, because nobody would be able to survive if they were over a few years, you see? So, there is an intensification, but it's all, it's all wrath. <laughs> okay? And the final part of wrath is the second coming of Christ. Do you see that? Wrath is used in those different ways. There, and the day of the Lord, I think, is used in those different ways too. So, uh, the rapture is, is here, pre-trib. Church goes up, meets the Lord in the air. Okay, what's the point in meeting the Lord up in the air here? Only to come back, like you know, six months later. <clears throat> I mean, I, I know that's not a that's not a killer argument, but to me, at least, it's worth asking. The church here is taken out. Now God is free to deal with Israel. Okay, so you have the covenant signed seven years. Who with Israel? Temple built. Israel. Do you see? These things are coming upon the earth and then the Antichrist rises because Satan gives him his power. Okay? Because Satan's cast out. He's using the Antichrist now for his own designs against Israel. Matthew 24. Abomination of desolation. It's all Israel focused. Um... And that fits in with the Old Testament picture of the tribulation in uh, Jeremiah 30 and, and Daniel 12 and so on. Um, we have to understand that the church is a new thing and the church, um, when you look at the Old Testament, you have the first and second comings fused together and you have also a time of, of uh, a time when, when Israel is going to be um, um, cast out, you know, pers- pursued and cast out, and then it's going to be drawn back again by God. Many people think that's 1918. Uh, it's not. Okay? It's in the tribulation sometime. Okay? They're going to be cast out, pursued by, by the Antichrist, and they will eventually be drawn back by God. Okay, that's what it's talking about in all of those passages in the Old Testament. Well, most of them, especially you know when it's talking about the end times, and talks about the Lord of Righteousness reigning and and all of those things, and the Kingdom, New, New Covenant passages. That's Israel. Even the Book of Hib- Hebrews, e- Israel. You know, in that in that context, not not the, the Gentile church, Hebrews. So, uh, what I see is the day of the Lord they know about, the Christians, the rapture they don't, tells them about the rapture, okay? If this is all wrath, 
from God, and I believe it is, then the church has to be taken out. First Thessalonians 5, because the, you know, we will not see the, that wrath. Okay? Also, God deals with Israel. You have that story in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and, and so on. It all unfolds the way that it was predicted to without the church getting in the way. You see? Because the church is kind of, um, I, I hate the term parenthesis. I don't like that term at all because it was, it's not a parenthesis as far as the plan of God is concerned. But the church is something that um, creation, okay, to uh, the call of Abraham, moving on to the law and Israel being uh, a nation and so on, Uh, moving on to the cross, Okay, the resurrection of Christ. Christ is offering the kingdom. I, you know, he's offering himself. They reject him. God knows that's going to happen. Okay, Jesus said it would happen. And so here, he's all, uh, for a while anyway, he's through with Israel as a nation doesn't deal with them as a nation anymore. Okay, so there's a pause on the Old Testament uh, prophetic pattern. So you have the church here. Okay, but the Old Testament prophetic pattern for Israel and so on has got to continue. Okay, and that continues with this covenant being signed. Okay, for seven years and being broken in the midst of that week. Okay, this is with Israel, so the church goes up. Okay, so that way this is very neat. Do you see? It doesn't get in the way of any of this this stuff here. We meet the Lord in the air. We have uh, rooms, you know, mansions in heaven. John fourteen. If I go, I'll come again and take you to myself. Where I am, yet there we there you will be. Also. Well, the, the, the mansions are in heaven, so you've got to have a little bit of time to enjoy them, don't you? <laughs> it's like, well, here are your mansions. I've been spending all this time, but I've, I'm going back down again, so, yeah. I wish we had more time um, uh, to do this, but I hope that what I've said at least shows you um, what's involved in this. Um, I gave the pre-wrath position more time because I believe the pre-wrath position, uh, not only are its, are its uh, adherents very evangelistic, okay, they, I mean, they, they really think it's, it's the bee's knees. Yeah. Um, but I think that the, it, has, it has some good arguments going for it as well. Uh, I just think that the, there are problems against it which outweigh anything it has for it and the preacher of rapture still has the best overall argument for it even though I didn't lay that out in great detail here